Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related, from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and everything in between. They also have a great library of podcasts, which I highly suggest checking out after this episode here. This week is yet another special episode here on the Ominous Origins Podcast. I got the wonderful opportunity to sit down with S.A. Bradley. S.A. Bradley is an author, he's a podcaster, and he's literally a walking, talking horror encyclopedia. The insight, the poeticness in which he speaks about horror, and just everything he does just oozes passion for the genre. It's rare when you get to hear somebody speak about anything the way Bradley speaks about horror. It's not just a hobby to him, it's not just movies, it's a way of life and the depth in which he seeks out themes and meaning behind these movies is just incredible. Like I said, he's an author, he's written a book called Screaming for Pleasure. I can't wait to get my hands on this thing and I highly suggest you do the same thing. But for right now, just listen to this man speak about horror movies and sit in awe for the next hour or so because that's basically what I did. Here's S.A. Bradley. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Today I'm joined here with S.A. Bradley. He is a podcaster and an uh, author. That's the word I'm looking for. I was going to say actor. Have you done any acting? <laughs> Uh, a little bit, but a nothing bit. I would put on a on a resume. On a resume, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, author, uh, his book is in distribution, and it is part of a curriculum at a university, which we'll get into in just a little bit. And his podcast, Hellbent for Horror, has been described by none other than Guillermo del Toro as well researched, articulate, and entirely absorbing. And I have to agree with that. So, pretty high praise from a standout guy like Guillermo. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it was a, a, a surprise. Let's just put it that yeah, way. Yeah, I was going to say, how did that uh, How did that come to be? Of all things, Twitter. Uh, oh. It ended up being one of those things where, so uh, he's a huge fan of John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. And there was this, yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, same here. And yeah. so I had a podcast, I think it was like my 15th episode, which was called uh, You Can't Argue with a Confident Man, which is a line from uh, an early John Carpenter movie, Assault on Precinct 13. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had put uh, a little bit about Del Toro in that episode because there was this little Twitter feed thing that he did, a bunch of different posts in a row, because uh, he had just sat and watched some laser discs of old Carpenter films. <laughs> and he started... Yeah. <laughs> nice. And so he started he started uh, going off on how he's an unappreciated uh, genius. And so there must have been about 20 uh, over that day, about 20 different tweets that he did about John Carpenter just kept going to a boil. And so I said, that's pretty amazing. And I think I'm going to put that in my in my story. So mm -hmm. I talked about what my experiences were with Carpenter, including seeing John Carpenter's The Thing in the theater in 1982 on opening day and hearing seeing the riot that happened <laughs> because uh, fathers were so enraged over what they just showed their sons. <laughs> and um, it you know, crippled his career and stuff. So I talked about that and everything. And uh, I mentioned Del Toro and somebody who was a listener, uh, I guess, knew him and put it in front of him. And so he started putting some posts on Twitter about my podcast and it was oh. like, oh my goodness. Okay, well, thank you so much. And he yeah. said, oh, well-earned stuff. And so, yeah, it was a, a really uh, strange thing. You, you never know what's going to happen on Twitter. Be nice to everybody, you know, <laughs> because it gets back somehow sooner or later. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, a lot of people always say you never get noticed or whatever unless you put something out there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes yeah. it's all it takes. It's just luck of the draw and, you know, you can put the best thing in the world out there, but if nobody sees it, then nobody knows about it. 
purely luck of the draw. I've put so much uh, hard intention to certain things that have gone nowhere, and mm-hmm. it's the it's the little thing that you don't expect. That's the 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 bit that somebody remembers, and yeah. I do think that that's very true as well. That uh, what you think is important that you're saying, you have no clue. Your audience <laughs> will let you know. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. And I mean, there's something to be said about uh, karma there. You put all that effort into other things and then one day the most unexpected thing just kind of takes off. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing is pretty much stumbling backwards into something cool. <laughs> Failing upwards. Yeah, <laughs> I'm they say. That. <laughs> uh, no, but all your stuff is very, very uh, endearing. And I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, but I do plan on it's on my to read list. But Reading takes a lot of time. And, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm not the uh, most, I guess, uh, pro- not productive, but like foot forward initiative taker, mm-hmm. so to speak. So, uh, but I will get around to it. Uh, but I do want to talk about that book a little bit. What drew you to writing, writing it? It's called uh, Screaming for Pleasure. And this right. is a topic that's kind of been a, a fascination of mine. It's kind of the, uh, correlation between fear and kind of that warm tingly feeling you get at the same time yeah and you put a lot of thought into this and i'd like to hear as much as you want to talk about about it <laughs> sure sure well that, yeah the book is called screaming for pleasure and the subtitles how horror makes you happy and healthy and it's a it's a love letter to all the things that go bump in the night and mm-hmm. how horror not only reinvents itself reflect each generation's anxieties but it can also be healing as well as thrilling and i, I say you know it's healing in the, the little ways that mean a lot it's not like it's going to cure your lumbago i don't tell people <laughs> to get off of their medication and watch uh friday the 13th uh series but at the same point, I think that it helps in uh, relieving uh, these parts of our shadow selves that really need to get taken a look at. And so when I talk about how horror makes me feel uh, better is that I realized uh, a while back that uh, I don't have a lot of control over what happens in this world, (laughs) but I do happen to have a little bit of control over the surrogate monsters in my life. So I think that all monsters and all movies are metaphors. They're Mm -hmm. metaphors for the things that scare us. And when I talk about how horror works in our culture, I think that horror cannot help but discuss what our anxieties are. Even the anxieties that we don't necessarily know are are in our midst. We don't sometimes find out about those until the decade passes. And then we look back and we go, wow, so that's what that was all about. But I think that because we're talking about uh, total anxieties like we have right now, Mm-hmm. in the world, uh, that horror can't help but touch on those things. And they may mm-hmm. talk, talk about them in a very general way, but a lot of times it's the subtext and a lot of times it's the allegory and metaphor. And I think that uh, horror is tailor-made for allegory and metaphor. I call right. horror the most beautiful language because of that. I think that it really does allow us to tell stories in the best possible way. It allows us to take a look at the visceral side of life uh, with a, a level of safety. So there are things that I would never want to have happen to me, uh, but a horror movie can allow it to happen mm-hmm. and I can be still be safe. But, you know, I'm not in control of anything that's happening in this world. And this world is a dangerous place, but a horror movie or a story will never hurt me. But what it can do is it can allow me to see that dark part of myself in a safe handshake uh, away from any kind of danger. It allows me to realize that everybody has that problem. It also lets me find sometimes my group, my tribe. You know, mm-hmm. I find people uh, who are just like me. I also found a sense of play later on in life because you can't take this shit too seriously. Right, right. <laughs> There's, get some fake blood and things going <laughs> and you find that it can be a lot of fun. Uh, but it's also the idea that we just need to be seen and heard. And if we can find whatever it is that our passion is big on, uh, I think that uh, it can be anything. But I think horror is also one of those pieces that people don't normally look at. And I think there is horror for anybody. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whenever I talk to folks and they say, I'm not a big horror fan, I go, well, what I have found is that people who love horror will come up and talk to me for about 20 minutes. People who dislike horror tend to talk to me for about 20 minutes. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's the same exact thing because we're still very passionate about it. A lot of times people who hate horror movies, they hate a specific horror movie. Mm -hmm. 
and they don't realize how wide and broad the scope and scale is of what is uh, a horror movie. And I think it needs to be broad because horror is very subjective. Mm-hmm. What scares you may not scare me. What scares me may put someone else in a coma. And so <laughs> we we need to have that open thing. And I believe that horror is there to help all of us take that the slings and arrows of what our normal life is about and allow us to relieve that tension a little bit. Uh, I'm in the midst of writing a foreword for a book that I have a short story in that's a compilation for firefighters. And I used to be a firefighter Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in the military. And we watched nothing but horror movies when we were in the the fire station overnight. And I said, you know, the reason that we did that is because it, it definitely allowed us to alleviate some anxieties that we couldn't even articulate. Mm. You know, it was just a stressful job. It was a yes. dangerous job. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, you don't walk around feeling that every all day, but you have this little anxiety within yourself. And a uh, horror movie watching, you know, people <laughs> explode or whatever uh, gave us uh, something to laugh at. It was mm-hmm. so absurd to take a look at that uh, horror that was there and knowing that we were looking at horror every day that it was actually rather beneficial and i think that horror is ancient and it's there for a specific reason it's lasted through the centuries for a reason it's because we need it uh it's not a social need uh it's not a uh community need it's it's a human need we need to be able to get rid of that boogeyman inside of us and uh, it allows us to have that safe way to be able to do that. That's very interesting. I, you know, when you bring that up, it uh, really gets me thinking, you know, you're right. Uh, ghost stories, campfire stories, folklore, mythology, a lot of it has to do with what scares the people of the time. Oh, yeah. Which is I, I, horror. Yeah, I think it's very important. I, I always say that horror is the second oldest story ever told. Uh-huh. Around the first campfire, uh, you have the elder and everybody else huddled in the dark. And, and the elder is saying in the first story, welcome, everybody. We are family. Thank the sky lords and thank the, mm-hmm. the animals for being our food. <laughs> and we are together. We are community. We are strong together. And the second story is whatever you do, don't go into the woods alone. <laughs> yeah. You will be eaten if you go in there. Yeah. And so it's a cautionary tale. And the cautionary tale, what we are cautioning against, says so much about our tribe. It tells us what our tribe is afraid of. Mm-hmm. And I tell people that it's not just the big budget horror movies or anything. If you really want to see what scares people at any given time, what the anxieties were of any decade, look at the really cheap horror movies. Mm-hmm. Look at the drive-in movies. Look at the grindhouse movies, whatever it might be. Because those movies... Movies lived and died on whether or not they could press that raw nerve and make people go, what in the heck is that movie about? And I think that if you look back, you'll see that the movies, say, in the silent era around 1918, 1920, uh, people like, uh, um, oh, my goodness, I'm forgetting his name now, Lon Chaney. Mm. Lon Chaney was a man of a thousand faces. But if you look at what he was doing, most of the time it was scarred faces. It was guys without legs. It was guys with humps in their back. It was guys without arms. Mm -hmm. And this is disfigurement of some kind. And that was a big deal after World War I. People were coming home ruined, destroyed. And there was actually a law that was put into place that said if you were wounded and you had a facial thing where you had an eye missing or something, you were you required to have a mask to put over your face. And there was an entire cosmetic uh, industry of making uh, ceramic faces on half faces. Kind of like Phantom of the Opera for people who are missing part of their face. Uh, People who, yeah. So our first monsters were people who came back and made us feel really bad about what happened to them. Oh, my and you'll see that through, you look at the horror movies of the 50s and you go, wow, giant ants, giant spiders, <laughs> what's that all about? And it's because we split the atom. As you say, nuclear, up, yeah. Yeah. We had this whole Pandora's box thing of what have we wrought? I think what's even more interesting is what the Japanese did. Godzilla comes out in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Godzilla happens not 10 years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki are bombed by us. Mm-hmm. And they have a giant fire-breathing god that comes out <laughs> of the water and sets fire to Tokyo, right? Yeah. What's interesting is it doesn't set fire to New York. It doesn't set fire to San Francisco. It sets fire to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So there is this great guilt 
over what happened. And uh, Japan ended up, uh, when they surrendered, they became uh, hunters for war criminals. They went after the Germans. They went after their own people. Right. Because they had a sense of honor that they had dishonored. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you have Godzilla be this great angst (laughs) coming back and setting fire. And it's one of the biggest movies that ever came out of Japan. It's a huge blockbuster to such a point that it came over to the United States Mm -hmm. and started an entirely different industry. Uh, They did that without 10 years going by from when the bombs dropped. Think about doing that with 9-11 here. It wouldn't be done. Yeah, you can't even talk about it still. Most most corners of the internet, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I see that horror is always talking about this. If you look at movies like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Mm -hmm. which there have been several remakes of, every one of those movies, if you take a look at what they're talking about, they're making a comment about what's scaring people in the the society at that time. In the 50s, you had uh, the Red Scare of Communism. But what's interesting about the first movie of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers that you can equally read the subtext as being anti-McCarthyism and anti-communism. They kept it so wide open. And I think it's one of the more beautiful horror films because it does not come with a uh, an obvious uh, thing that you're trying that it was trying to teach you. It allows you to come to it and bring whatever it is that you fear. And I think mm-hmm. that was really brilliant. Uh, if you look in the 70s, you've got everybody worried about uh, what's happening with the family uh, and what's happening with the church. All the major foundational things of the country are starting to whittle away. So all of a sudden you have the exorcist where you have mm-hmm. a kid who's screaming at the parents and you know, maybe God is dead and the church no longer has strength. Uh, you see the step wives and all of these things about pregnancy, bad pregnancy, mm-hmm. evil kids yeah, happening yeah. right around the Equal Rights Amendment. You, know, you have all wow. these slasher films happening as a response mm-hmm. to what's going on with women's lib. When feminism starts to get really toxic, as far as people are concerned, uh, suddenly we have the slasher films. And the more that there is an attack on those films saying this is uh, this is misogynistic and anti-women, the horror movies doubled down on that and made them even worse. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. You can see what we think of each other through the horror movies that are there. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of healthiness that can come out of that. You know, I also think that horror doesn't have to apologize for anything. Just like anything else, it has a purpose. And horror's purpose is not to share half of its lunch with you at, at recess. <laughs> it, is, it is the dark forest. It is uh-huh. the Joseph Campbell hero's journey. The, you go to the forest. The forest doesn't come to you. And I think that horror is uh, is there for that reason. It will always be somewhat untamable in that fashion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do also think that there are no such thing as bad emotions. There are bad responses to emotions. And I think that if you're just dealing with one emotion too much, that might be a little bit too much for anybody it's, as well. But I think that uh, we have to realize that uh, as much as it's wonderful to look at the positive side of things, I think there is a primal side of us that still needs to be looked at, the very Jungian idea of the shadow self, right? You have mm-hmm. uh, the shadow where, uh, you know, we have the personae that is, where you know we put on this face so that people like us. But then there's the shadow, which is this dark primal piece of us that sometimes wants to see the world burn, and it is part of us. And everybody has it, right? Uh And what Jung says is that you can ignore that shadow at your peril, which means sooner or later that brat is going to get your attention. And if you let it get your attention, you're usually in trouble. Maybe that's when you get divorced. Maybe that's when you get caught embezzling money, selling things to the Russians, whatever it might be. <laughs> you don't and, do that nowadays. Uh, yeah, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, and so, uh, Yeah. <laughs> so I think that uh, we, uh, we have that thing where uh, we can have a safe handshake, a safe dance with that, uh, with that shadow self. When we look at it through art, art allows us to have this distance from the the burning rubber uh, of uh, of the uh, problems that are happening in our lives. Uh, it allows us a surrogate bad guy. You know, I can't kill my my uh, boss, but I can watch a movie where someone who has that issue is kind of taken out. Right. And uh, and in even deeper ways, you know, I can't I can't. Uh, 
do anything about what's happening socially right now. I can only do my small part, but I can feel helpless. But I can watch a movie about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I tell people I don't want to see a horror movie about the insurgency, right? But mm -hmm. I'm more than happy to watch monsters attack Congress. That might be fun <laughs> to watch. Right, yeah. And yeah. it's it's still relieving that tension, that, that thing that I don't want to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about. I think horror allows us to look at things that we would never sit and watch in a straight dra drama or a documentary. Right. So is that, in in your opinion, um, I've had this conversation with a few people uh, about how, how sometimes horror just doesn't translate from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. And do you think that pretty much what you're saying about the whole, it's of the time. That's why mm -hmm. if you showed like a 12-year-old, uh, maybe Friday the 13th now, they might be like, I don't get it. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Whereas if you show them something like hereditary, they might be like, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is something different. I, I, I say that a lot, actually. And I think there's a piece that's in the book about that as well, which is, you know, if like The Exorcist, The Exorcist mm -hmm. from anybody from, I'd say, 35 older mm -hmm. would look at The Exorcist and go, that's one of the scariest horror movies ever made. Right. But it's also of a different time period. Very with different. A lot, a lot of pacing differences. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a slow ass movie from today's <laughs> standards, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and it's also talking about a time when there, uh, we weren't nearly as secular of a society mm -hmm. where the church still had a lot of power, but it was losing power. And so there was this fear that everything was going to fall into chaos in certain ways. So if you're young and you're growing up and you don't understand the power that the church used to have, which is some of the things that fuel that film, mm -hmm. and you're not nearly as religious as maybe your grandparents were who, who spent time in church uh, worrying about demons, if that movie doesn't register with you, it's not your fault. Times mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, you're my age and you don't understand hereditary, because you don't want to look at how the world has changed, that's your problem. It's right. not the new, new people's problem. And <laughs> right. I think that's one of the things that uh, is important that I try to keep in mind is that the world is changing consistently. And I need to see why people think certain things are scary and why they don't think other things are scary. Right. And, uh, and allow myself to be open to that. And I like to think that I'm still pretty good about uh, watching uh, films, especially new films, and see where the the fear lies. You know, it really is so much about context. Mm -hmm. You know, at, at a certain point, you can't help but think that the world is still somewhat running on the same gears and stuff that it did when you were a teenager. But the reality is that's not true at all. Right. And I think that uh, the more the technology changes, uh, just by the, the speed of how fast things can fall apart, uh, it, it has changed uh, drastically in the last decade or so from what it was even a decade before that. And, and I think that uh, you need to be able to keep up with that. And why I think that there's so much uh, angst that you see around, say, I think it finally it's going out of, uh, out of vogue, but the zombie thing was so huge. Oh yeah. For and at least I, 10 years. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think, uh, and it's so funny because when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, you had to be kind of like, you were like one of the sick ones. If you watch zombie movies, <laughs> they're like kind of considered the really grotesque stuff. People eating right. people yeah. and stuff. It's like, what's wrong with you? You're a real freak. <laughs> And uh, can't you just watch people kill each other? No, yeah. you have to watch like them eat each person, other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's not the case now. Uh, it was very it's super mainstream. Uh, and to the idea that The Walking Dead was a major hit uh, mm -hmm. and, and changed on-screen violence uh, mm -hmm. on television even. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think um, you know that speaks to an isolation that may not have been as uh, important as it was uh, for generations before. I think that the idea that uh, apocalypse now is very, seems very real uh, <laughs> and that there are multiple different types of apocalypses that there can be. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that is a, a major uh, concern that's out there. And I think there are so many. Uh, I think it's really interesting to watch movies like uh, Titan, uh, which is uh, mm -hmm. by... Uh, Julia Dracarnow, who did uh, Raw, okay, and and look at that film and go, 
wow, what is the, the, the psychic scream that folks are having about identity right now? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things, I think that's one of the frontiers that's really going to get talked about. Uh, gender fluidity, I think there's genre fluidity right now. And I think yes. genre fluidity is the best fucking thing that could happen. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I should have uh, asked. If you can okay swear, swear, it is perfectly okay. fine. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I am so... Uh, overly uh, pleased to get rid of the, I think labels belong on poison and medicines. (laughs) And after that, we really should uh, just take chances. And, uh, you know, horror uh, is always kind of the, uh, the, the genre that takes the slings and arrows of everybody else. It gets Mm -hmm. dismissed, gets mocked, but everybody goes to it when they need it because it's always there when we need it. It's there for, for these moments where we're feeling this uh, this madness. But horror also gets disrespected even by the people who are in horror, the, right. the gatekeepers. They're mm. gatekeepers like crazy. Mm-hmm. And so you have people who are saying elevated horror or post-horror and all of this stuff for things that have existed in horror for the longest time. But right. folks just want to take the context of what's happened in the last decade. I understand that because time is moving so quickly, but mm-hmm. it is kind of important to remember that horror is horror is horror. And uh, I believe that we don't need any velvet ropes. I think the velvet rope is some of the worst stuff that was ever invented. It's never, you know, labels are never inclusive. They're always no. exclusive. Yeah, they're, they're always made telling to you separate. You can't be. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I think horror is so broad already and such a uh, there are so many tributaries into the great river of horror uh, that come from foreign countries as well as different views and perspectives. Mm-hmm. The old white guy perspective is far from the uh, the only thing that you can get these days, which oh, I think yeah. is great. Yeah. We need perspective and focal shifts. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that I think those focal shifts are great. And uh, everything does not have to be an 80s film, which uh, sometimes <laughs> drives me crazy. I didn't like the way that ended. Well, you know, it actually ended like a 70s film, not like an 80s film. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, so you, you mentioned like the, the label thing. And I, I was going to actually mention that before you brought it up there. Uh, the thing about like, you know, elevated horror is, mm-hmm. is uh, a common contention with a friend of mine and I. Yeah. Um, and... She really likes like the A twenty four films, like Hereditary, uh, Bob. Oh Duke, yeah, um, I love them. Midsummer stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think the movies like like that that are being made more frequently than they used to be, uh, at least in the mainstream, mm-hmm. is, is that because of the culture and society and how I don't want to use I hate using this term, but like the quote unquote woke culture. And right. how it kind of investigates and it's a little bit deeper thinking than it was maybe 40 or 50 years ago. Well, I think uh, 40 or 50 years ago, there were a lot of movies that were like what we have now at Bay 24. I okay. think uh, when we hit the 80s, things kind of changed. And we okay. went to a certain style of horror film, which became very, very popular. I won't say that every film was like that, but there had always been movies like uh, the Babadook. Well, nothing quite like the Babadook. I think the Babadook is one of the very few truly original ideas mm-hmm. because horror movies usually end with either the monster kills you or you kill the monster. Mm-hmm. But the Babadook comes up with a middle ground, which is thoroughly original and fresh, which I right. think is truly amazing. Uh, but for the most part, there had been movies that were like this. And uh, I, I'm not necessarily sure if I would say it's it's woke, woke culture. But what I will say is it's kind of like what I heard uh, Henry Rollins say about punk rock. They were asking him about why did punk rock happen? Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, you know what happened? Some guy said, fuck that. <laughs> and then somebody else said, voice of a generation. I'm following that. Right. So literally, it comes down to someone saying, fuck that and making something that's like this, whether it be David Fincher or it be Ari Aster or others of that ilk mm-hmm. or um I'm, tr- I'm now forgetting the name of uh, the director of The Babadook, but she made a fantastic film. Whoever it was that dis- that made that film and made it successful, like Midsummer or not Midsummer, but Hereditary is probably a, a pretty good flashpoint. But there have been A24 movies before that that were right. really challenging the the norm of what people expected out of a horror film. 
Uh, but it became more of a thing just like punk rock did, where one band said F you and everybody followed that because it spoke to a under underground, this groundswell of feeling that everybody had and nobody could articulate it. And then one group articulates it and everybody knows exactly what it sounds like and they go for it. Right. Seattle sound up in, in the 90s yeah, for the grunge, grunge would be yeah. another thing yeah. where that was around for a long time. And the first band was not Nirvana, but no, at the same point, not. they were the one that helped everybody else go voice of a generation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that happens with anything that is a cultural shift. And I do think that it speaks to a time period. And I think we are in a spot that could be a little bit more introspective and allows for this. I do think, like I have no problems. I have, a, I have problems with woke being considered a slur. Right. Or being considered something that is not, I mean, it just drives me crazy because we have been woke many, many times. Right, right. <laughs> like uh, a comedian at one time said, you know what I love about the millennials? And he was making a joke about millennials or Gen Z. And he said, he goes, you're the most progressive generation ever and everybody applauds and he goes, every generation is the most progressive <laughs> generation ever. Right. And there is truth to that. We yeah. are always pushing the ball a little bit further, mm -hmm. trying to get to the end zone. There may never be an end zone. But w whatever my generation did, which I think made more harm than good, actually, Generation <laughs> X, I'm not sure. But um, we push the ball as far as our comfort zone would allow our progressiveness to be. Right. And then, boom, the, the next generation starts at that line. Right. They don't have to go back. Right. So okay. what do you expect progression to be? The same thing, but a little bit backwards? No, it goes forwards. So they're able to start with a fresh thing. Oh, well, that's just how things are. I think about that when, you know, everybody mocks uh, the, the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. The baby boomers changed everything. Right. And they did become snide and all of that stuff. Wonderful. But my goodness, they started when people were getting their heads caved in for standing next to a black man. Right. That was where their starting zone was. Yeah. We didn't have to worry about that. That That's was true. way in the past by the time we started. So we, if we started there, we're really lazy. Right. No, we start with whatever their progression or the progressiveness had allowed. And I think that that happens in storytelling. I think you'll see it in, in a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I, I always am saddened whenever I see people try to go reactionary on this stuff and like say, well, this is an old fashioned, good old fashioned story that just talks about men being men. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> do you, does it really, are you kidding? Is that really what you think we need right now? Right. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but saying that that's the, the wave of the future is kind of short-sighted. And I don't think that it has a lot of legs. Whereas I have no idea what's going to happen. And I, Certainly don't know if it's all going to work out, but at the same point, I do know it's the future, right? Yeah. And I do know that my uh, context is different than it is if I was, say, 18 right now. I can't even think about graduating anytime oh, yeah. between 2020 and 2022 right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To have that be your graduation time. I yeah. mean, I we had like the challenger explosion <laughs> it was like yeah. the thing that was the downer for us yeah and and uh i can't even think about what it'd be like trying to do this through plague and not only right. just having plague but having plague that some people believe in and others don't and yeah. you know just the division that's mm -hmm. out there mm -hmm. uh to grow up with that that has to be a different contextual change than what i had and oh, i yeah. think the stories that you're going to tell are going to be different as well yeah, no, that, and I uh, welcome them. I'm, yeah. I'm greedy. I want all the all <laughs> the monsters. Want all the monsters, all the stories that go along yep. with them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the best way to. You kind of make it seem like a history lesson in the sense of like if you go back and watch these movies from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, so on, you can get a good feeling of the time just yeah. by watching these horror movies. Oh, yeah. You you can see horror movies where people didn't see horror movies. Right. Like uh, Birth of a Nation, mm -hmm. uh, an amazing horror movie. If you watch that, I mean, people who sit there and say, well, we're just trying to protect our heritage. Do you even know what your heritage is? Have you watched <laughs> this movie? Right. You tell me what the heritage is that you're trying to preserve in this movie. 
but that was a movie that was mainstream and beloved to the point where the president of the United States endorsed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if that doesn't tell you a little bit about that time period, I don't know what does. And it's not a time period that people would talk about in that fashion. You know, when people talk about the greatest uh, generation, those that uh, fought World War II, they don't talk about the discrimination. They don't talk about the Tuskegee Airmen, but all of that happened. Yeah. yeah. You find that in the horror movies, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I wish I had known a half of this stuff back in, you know, grade 11, grade 12. So they might have done a little bit better in school. <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's super fascinating. And the way you kind of interweave uh, the, the social commentary with these movies is, I don't want to sound like I'm hitting on you, but it's very poetic. <laughs> thank you <laughs> I, i'm very much like captivated usually i'm a little more talkative with the uh, interview i'm just like just keep going i, I love hearing all of this uh, so how did your book uh the the screen for pleasure how did that get into the uh webster university curriculum that's a great question i'm still trying to figure that out <laughs> is it like uh, the whole Guillermo del toro thing all over <laughs> kind of kind of what ended up happening was uh i can't remember if the person got the book first but he's, uh, I think, assistant dean uh, of the entertainment, film, and, and television uh, mm-hmm. group at Webster University. Okay. And Webster University is a pretty progressive school that looks at pop culture a lot more than some schools might. And so he was either a fan of Help In For Horror, the podcast, and got the book, or he got the book and was like, what the hell is this podcast? And he <laughs> listened to the podcast. Okay. I think it was he listened to the podcast and he had uh, listened to the first 30 shows. And he said, in the first 30 shows, you created a universe of uh, historical value of how to look at horror. Mm -hmm. He said, that was really amazing. And it might have been a stream of consciousness consciousness thing on your part. But as soon as you wrote the book, I had to had to uh, read it. And so he got in touch with me and he said, uh, I'm thinking about putting this book on my curriculum and just giving the first chapter as an assignment. And the first chapter is called The First Kiss. And basically what I call The First Kiss, the first kiss that you had with horror, not the first horror movie that you saw, but the first one that knocked you on your ass and Mm -hmm. made you have to watch more and more of them. And I said, you know, sometimes first kisses are bad. My first kiss, I had nightmares for three nights in a row. And then I had to watch the movie again. And right. after that, I felt like I had accomplished something. And there is that whole thing of um, if I watch a horror movie, I can stop the terror of that life at any moment. I can hit pause. I can get up. I can leave. I can turn it off, mm-hmm. whatever it is. But there is a reward in finishing it. Right. Coming out on the other side just gives you a feeling of accomplishment. And as a kid, even though I was only eight years old when I saw a movie I should not have seen, uh, I was uh, captivated by it. And I felt that I was no longer alone with whatever that scared feeling was that I had. Right. And I found that that's one of the things that horror does is it legitimizes us in our terror as well. And what I mean by that is if I have a visceral reaction to a film and it feels like it just spoke directly to me it wasn't my dad's films it wasn't my uncle's films it was my film Mm -hmm. and it talked directly to me i know they didn't make it just for me that means there are other people who feel just like me out there there are enough people that feel this way that they thought to make a movie about it and that's very affirming when you feel absolutely alone. I think music does the same thing. I think music and horror work the same way. They don't necessarily, art works the same way. You don't necessarily right. think about art. You feel art first. Mm-hmm. So that's a long story to what ends up happening with Webster University. He ra- reads this and he says, I'd like to do this first chapter. And would you come to speak? And so I did get to speak to uh, a class and I gave a uh, a lecture that I call my horror manifesto. Mm. I basically talk about how horror does not deserve anybody's shame. That horror is a proud tradition, but it also has a proud tradition of being uh, called the problem. And so I, I use the idea of how every time a horror movie gets nominated for an Oscar, they start calling it a thriller or a romantic thriller. Anything or a, but. Yeah. Anything but horror, that mm-hmm. horror has this 
this real slur to it. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with expectations. And it has to do sometimes more with the audience than it does with the movie itself. Uh, it's almost like having bad relatives. You know, I don't want it to be associated with a movie that has babies eating each other. You know, that's another <laughs> horror movie. But but I don't want my movie to be associated with that. So I'll call right, it something else. Right. And so uh, I talk about how horror does not deserve that. And so I had that happen uh, and I got to speak at the school. And so it's part of the curriculum. I think it's uh, one semester on, one semester off. He has another book that he uses uh, okay. and we alternate back and forth on that. Uh, but I've gone there to uh, talk to the, the students. I've gone there for a film festival, which is really cool, watching mm -hmm. some crazy stuff. And I've also <laughs> spoken at, uh, I believe it was University of Idaho. And they also had me uh, do my horror manifesto to the cinema class. And that is, is so much fun. It's one of my favorite things possible. I think that uh, people like myself, the, the, the people who are like really hardcore horror fans, mm -hmm. they need to give it away. I am compelled to create in some form. I can't. Mm -hmm. It's not a spectator sport. Right. But it's also not a hoarding thing which is what gatekeepers do. Gatekeepers right. hoard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, it's I got to give it away. And what I love to do is talk about this stuff and see people go, wow, that's pretty amazing. And mm -hmm. they go watch something and then they bring something to me. I will never run out of things to watch. Horror is way <laughs> too broad and there's just too much. Mm -hmm. you know, I could, every day I could watch something and I still won't scratch the entire surface. There are different styles of horror. And to these days with streaming, Oh, yeah. uh, you have the ability to anybody. You don't have to be a hardcore weirdo like me where I used <laughs> to have to go to like video stores in the city just to try and find bootleg versions of something that was a, an Asian uh, Cat 3 thriller. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get those on television now. You yeah. can look them up on YouTube. You can go on Tubi or Alter mm -hmm. and you can find uh, everything that I had to search for or that I could only find pictures of in books they're available. And I think that's allowed the language of horror to expand. We have Japanese and Korean horror films that are scoring number one on Netflix. Oh, yeah. That's unheard of. Yeah. You know, in my my lifetime, as a even in my 30s, I was maybe one of a handful of people who would watch an Asian horror film. And now they're all over the place. Well, now they're winning Oscars. If, yes, if exactly. Parasite, you know. I absolutely do. Yeah. In fact, I look at Parasite, I look at 1917, and I look at Joker as three horror films in the same year that were nominated for Best Picture. And I have a yeah. whole thing about why I say that all three of those <laughs> movies are horror movies. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen 1917, so I can't comment, but the other two definitely. Yeah, I can yeah. see. Yeah. Uh, take a watch of that if you have if there's anything that comes out of this watch 1917 okay and and think about uh why i might look at it as a horror film okay. and also how it's a how it's a it's almost like the first time you played resident evil or something mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. the first uh role-playing game where you're you're the uh, you're shooting at mm -hmm. things that are coming around corners. That's exactly what 1917 is like. It never allows you to see around the corners. You are, your face, their face is the entire world. You're okay. not getting establishing shots. You're not getting uh, any cuts. It's just this nonstop rolling forward through hell. That's interesting. Yeah, I will it was amazing. definitely put that on my radar because I had no idea yeah. it, was, it was like that. Yeah, it's it's an amazing film. It's not mm -hmm. a war film. People call it a war film. Right. And I said, no, war films are have objectives. War films are about <laughs> right. certain historical moments. You know nothing about why 1917 is important. You don't know anything about World War One except that there's Germans, and uh -huh. you learn nothing new by the end of the film. It's right. all about a visceral experience. What is it like to go into the ground, into a pit where there is no sun, Mm -hmm. And people are screaming and then go into no man's land. Right, right. Okay. Waiting for explosions. You know, yeah. And walking on dead bodies, crawling yeah. over mountains of dead bodies. Your next step is your last. Yeah. And it's all visceral. There's the, the entire movie is about feeling. And that's what horror does the best. Horror is the only genre that is named after an emotion. 
and it's all about emotions. Yeah, okay, I never thought about that either. Uh, it says here uh, on uh, one of the things that you sent me, over 1,600 horror films watched. I imagine that number has gone up substantially since whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and it's it's a very conservative thing because even when I think about it, uh-huh. uh, I think of my friends going, what do you mean 1,600? That sounds like just a bad summer. And it's like, <laughs> no, no. It's, if you if you add it up in hours, it's it's a lot That's of time. That's a lot of hours, yeah. yeah. If you look at 90 minutes on average. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but it has gone up, yeah. You, you also mentioned uh, a movie you saw that you shouldn't have seen when you were eight. Do you remember the first horror movie you ever saw? Oh, the first horror movie I ever saw, I'm not sure, but I would almost venture that it would either be Tarantula. Uh, it was definitely a giant bug with the exclamation point mm-hmm. name. It's either Tarantula or Them, the giant ants. Okay. Uh, because that was what my dad would allow me to see because oh, okay. I was a very scared kid. I got scared at uh cartoons cartoons could scare me and so my dad was like well i'm not staying up all night with this kid we'll (laughs) we'll see what he can watch and i was scared at the spiders so tarantula was like a big deal uh but the movie that scarred me that made me need to do this all the time was a nicholas rogue film from 1974 called don't look now okay and it's a very artsy horror film which is so strange but it's uh, a movie that has a child drowning in the first five minutes and the the beginning of that movie is legendary donald Sutherland, who stars and it still cannot watch the first five minutes of that film Mm. it affects him so deeply and it's a very surreal film it's uh, it's it's what probably gave christopher nolan the inspiration to be christopher nolan it's a movie that's in non-linear time Nicholas Rogue played with uh, frames within frames. There's a lot of handheld stuff. The horror movies that I grew up with was all studio stuff, that big black and white with the the very uh, flat lighting everywhere. Mm -hmm. And everybody walks into the frame and walks out of the frame and the monster comes in. Very, very standard Hollywood filmmaking or independent filmmaking. And then I saw this movie from Britain and it's handheld. It's shaky. It's outside and there's children involved. And it basically has this whole thing where the parents have this sudden premonition that something's wrong in the yard of their little palatial estate that they're in. And the child drowns and the father just senses something's wrong outside. The way that they do this, where they use visual motifs that make you feel as if the devil or evil is nearby. Mm -hmm. Uh, The colors, the way colors are used, slow motion, upside down shots, all this weird (laughs) shit. And it has the father pulling this kid out of the water, out of a Mm -hmm. pond that the child is drowned in, screaming. And his hair is all matted around his face and all that's showing is his mouth. Okay. And he looks like a beast. And he's weeping and falling on the ground. He's covered in mud and it's a father crying. And there's very little that's as disturbing to a kid of eight years old Mm -hmm. than parents screaming and crying and falling and not able to save the kid. And that's what I got out of that movie was that parents might not save you. And that was something that I was very afraid of as a kid. And mm. especially I did not know it at the time, but my parents were getting a divorce and it was an ugly divorce. Oh, and I just knew everybody right. was angry. Mm. And so this movie affected me in a way that I didn't, I don't know if it would, if my parents weren't getting divorced, I don't know. Right. But it was just one of those things where I suddenly had this, this rip from seeing something so graphic mm-hmm. and so scary. And there was never anything that was quite like it. And it was so surreal. It was so strange and bizarre. It was like nothing that was on TV. It's like nothing that was in the movies that I watched on Saturday morning horror shows. Mm-hmm. This was completely something adult and different and forbidden. I shouldn't have been watching that. Right, right. Which also adds to the, the yeah. scare factor a little bit. I think we all get corrupted. I think our knowledge comes from corruption. We're tempted mm. by corruption first. Uh, it's very true, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, that's interesting. So I remember the it's a very different story from my first horror movie, and that was Child's Play 2. Ah, <laughs> that's a great one, though. That's scary. It, it, when you, I was in fourth grade, so eight, nine years old, mm. 
and had a friend who was very into horror and I wasn't. I was I was very much like you, I was like a very timid, shy, scared little kid. Like everything frightened me. Uh and then he shows me this movie. And what's more frightening to I guess like a shallow eight-year-old, because I my parents I didn't they, I had a, a a easy upbringing as a child, like not rich, but middle class with no issues, family issues, sort of thing. So something like uh, the movie you described probably wouldn't do anything to me, but the idea of my toys coming to life and killing me in my sleep. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a very real world thing that a kid now has to worry about. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. And even to this day, I still don't really like the Child's Play movies. <laughs> and there's just that whole uncanny valley thing that yes. we're not quite aware of. Yes. But, yes. but it affects us. I remember being scared of dolls, my, my sister's dolls. Mm-hmm. Just being in a room and it's dead quiet and you look over and these things are staring at you is creepy as hell. Oh, yeah. And I remember a horror movie that had like the doll's eyes lit up, (laughs) you know, in in a dark room. I'm going, oh, well, I'm done sitting in the room with the dolls because that might happen. (laughs) (laughs) Just the the might of it is like enough. Yeah. Well, it's a fear of the unknown, right? Right. It could, the potential for... And then your brain goes and you're like, oh, well, it's the same as if you wake up at three o'clock in the morning. Like, do I really have to go pee that bad? Right. <laughs> there's it's, nothing it's, out there, but there might be. Yeah. There's yeah. something so primal, so real and so viscerally honest mm-hmm. about just saying it's about fear of the unknown. That's not shallow. And no. that's it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. That's super complicated once you start to unravel it. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. There's um, so much in there. As much as I would like to explore that, I have just one more question for you. Sure. Before we wrap this this up. Out of the hundreds and thousands of movies you've watched, is there a genre or a, I know you don't like to label it, um, but a type, I guess, of horror mm-hmm. movie that you're not a fan of, be it extreme or body or right. whatever? Right. Uh, Extreme depends. You know, I look at uh, extreme horror films. It's like uh, Scoville scale on peppers. Right. I think horror movie fans like myself, it's like, oh, that movie made you turn green. I got to see that. (laughs) So there is a fascination that goes Mm -hmm. with that. But I think the movies that I dislike are ones that have no emotion to them. Okay. And I mean, even uh, like I, I talk about slasher films where mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan. I was a huge fan of like the first two years of slashers mm-hmm. when there was no rule to them. There was right. no final girl. The template mm-hmm. wasn't there. Mm-hmm. It was just anybody could die at any time. And it was really very uh, primitive and scary in its own way. But then it became very much. Uh, without emotion. They became comic booky. Yes. It was just about how to kill people. And they followed the same damn template. In fact, there was a, a director who went to see another film with a stopwatch and he picked <laughs> when everybody died and he made his movie so that it would everybody would die at the same minute mark. Oh my. And you know, that kind of yeah, that kind of uh cynicism. And I think maybe that's a thing. It's where people are just dying for no reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not even sure if that's the right way to say it. There is one movie that I always point to, and okay. it's called Confessions of a Serial Killer. Okay. It came out in the 90s, and it's basically just, it's it's your typical police procedural where there's a guy in prison, and they go to talk to him. It's supposed to be loosely based on Henry Lee Lucas, mm-hmm. and it's just the 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 idea is that there's an outraged police officer and he's going to take this guy's confessions and the guy starts to speak and then you see what he does and there's just this total sterility to the thinking that's there total callousness and disregard for victims Mm -hmm. it's just so antiseptic in its desire to maim people and it has no emotion whatsoever to it. But that's what I consider, you know, I hate to use the term pornographic, but it would mm-hmm. be something like that. Okay. Where it is desensitized in a way where it's it's not even, I'm not even sure who it's made for. It's okay. there to get somebody's rocks off for some reason. So right. I hate when things are just stupid in that way. <laughs> uh, and and that's that's what uh, irritates me the most is that I think horror is all about surprise. Right. Horror is all about uh, emotion. 
Mm-hmm. Horror is all about how you feel, getting deep down in there. So any movie that does not do that, it fails on all those parts. To me, that's that's the worst kind of horror movie. Okay. And I'm not sure what, what it's there for, what its purpose is. Right. No, I, I totally get that. Um, there's oftentimes where I watch movies. Um, and maybe I'm a little bit too harsh because I find it in a lot of movies. I'm like, what was? why was this movie made? <laughs> right. You know, I like, do have that every so often. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, why did this add anything to anything? Did it? Right. Uh, the most recent one I can think of is... Uh, and uh, you, a lot of people disagree with me vehemently about this opinion. Okay. But it's the 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 reboot or remake or whatever you want to call it of the wrong wrong turn franchise, the one that came ah, out last year. Right, right. And like, I get the I get why it was made and the the point it's trying to make and the the whole subtext and stuff. But it's so far from removed from what the original wrong turn series was. Why stick mm-hmm. the name wrong turn on it? Right. Well, that's probably one of my my big pet peeves is that if you're going to vary so there it's it's like the ultimate sign that you're just in it for a buck yes. is when you need the name for brand recognition mm-hmm. but you despise the brand it's exactly yeah yeah and and that bothers me i love reimagining yeah. i have no problems with that because i love john carpenter's the thing there's nothing further from the original the thing than john right. carpenter's the thing mm-hmm. it, it, and i think uh for me i don't like sequels i prefer uh, remakes over sequels because okay. remakes at least have the possibility of taking something that didn't work the first time or had its flaws mm-hmm. and breathe something new into it or bring it from one generation to the next generation. Yes. Whereas a sequel is just a recopy of a recopy of a recopy. It kills <laughs> what it loves. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. I totally understand. I, so I think, uh, was it early 2010s? I think is when a lot of the eighties franchises started to get rebooted. Yeah. Like Friday the 13th, yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street, somewhere like 2009, 2011. Right there yeah i mean they didn't stick but no, they, they made me weary because they were mostly not they were they were mostly wanting the brand name recognition mm-hmm. and they were altering so far from the norm or they were even worse they're assuming you know so much about the first that they just yes. kind of made this thing that couldn't hold up as a movie itself yes yeah. I even had a problem with Fire Walk With Me because it was based on Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you didn't see the show Twin Peaks, the you movie made no, no sense. And I'm like, yeah. why does this even exist as a movie then? <laughs> yeah. If it can't stand on its own, it it's not a movie. Yeah. And, and that's sort of, I guess, the uh, the same issue that the whole Marvel franchise is going to run into eventually. If you want to watch the newest one, you got to go back and watch the 30 previous ones. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's so funny. It's following the the issue that there was with comic books i was a huge silver age comic book guy Mm -hmm. and then it got to a point where i needed to every month get eight different comics there were Mm. five different spider-man comics (laughs) running at the same time yeah and it becomes this thing where it becomes uh, it's almost like you're oversaturating destroying your your own uh clientele yeah and I think that's going to happen when it becomes so referential that no one who hasn't seen, you know, it's like when America's Got Talent or whatever the first of those shows was that mm-hmm. came out. I remember people were like going, did you see Ruben? Ruben was so good last night. I'm like, I don't know what the hell you're talking <laughs> yeah. about. Who the hell is Ruben? A sandwich? I like sandwiches. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> what the hell? They were like saying these two people's names, Cliff or Clyde like and, Clay and Ruben. Or yeah. yeah, Clay and <laughs> Ruben. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I have yeah. no clue. And it's like you have this shortcut to an experience. And yeah. I think that that happens with entertainment a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I'm not a fan. I, I do. I get critical of movies that I uh, franchises that I like when they don't take into consideration that they need to be a movie that stands on their own. Mm-hmm. Another reason why I'm not a big fan of uh, sequels, especially for horror movies, because horror movies are all about the element of surprise and the unknown, as you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. A sequel cannot help but answer questions the first part didn't give you. Right. And if horror lives in the unknown, you're making less unknown. 
I don't yeah. need comfort food. Go find something else to be comfort food. Horror movies shouldn't be like a nice bowl of soup. I've heard people say that. <laughs> I just like it like a nice bowl of soup. I said, no, this bowl of soup should be poisoned. It should <laughs> not. You should get terrible stomach cramps. Yeah, it, it's scorpion pepper ridiculous. in there or something. Yeah. 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 You should not be sitting around going, ah, oh, horror. What a wonderful warm sweater. Right. You know, right. find something else to do that with. Yeah. I mean, it could be disguised as a nice warm bowl of soup. Oh, yeah. And then I underneath there's razor blades. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Well, that's that's Parasite. Yeah. Parasite yeah. was like, yeah. wow. Yeah. What an amazing film. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Mr. Bradley, I really want to thank you for, for stopping by today. This was a really intriguing, enlightening chat. Uh, and I wish I had had it sooner with you, to be fair. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much, Casey. It's been a pleasure being on. Uh, before I let you go, do you want to drop your social medias, your Twitters, Instagrams, Facebooks, anything like that? Sure. And your uh, podcast. So my podcast is yeah. called uh, Hellbent for Horror. I'm here to remind you that you used to love horror movies and you secretly still do. And my podcast is about everything related to horror. I talk about horror as art and social commentary. And I talk about movies, books, stories, even music that shaped me and how that shapes horror as a film style. And you can find that at hellbentforhorror.com. All of the, uh, the uh, uh, shows are on there and you can get a whole bunch of information about me. But anywhere that you listen to your podcast, you including Spotify, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, you'll find Hellbent for Horror there as well. Uh, if you're looking for the book, there is a part on the website that talks directly to the book. Uh, you can also find that on Amazon or whatever. If you're someone who likes to support independent booksellers, the mom and pops that are nearby you, I do have on my webpage the ISBN number. You can copy that. You can send that to whatever bookstore you want. They'll be more than happy to buy that book directly for you. And you're helping the small business. Like uh, if you're looking for me on Instagram, I'm Hellbent for Horror. Uh, Twitter is Hellbent Horror. Uh, for some reason, Hellbent for Horror was taken <laughs> all those years ago. <laughs> uh, and you can find me uh, as Hellbent for Horror as well on Facebook. Excellent. Be sure to check out all of that social media. Once again, thank you so much for stopping by today. Thank you so much. <laughs>